Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson. And in today's episode, we're looking into the future. We're going to explore how technology will create new opportunities to monetize our expertise and what effects that will have on our understanding of jobs and careers. My guest is Draw Poleg, a writer and all-round purveyor of interesting ideas. I discovered Draw's blog at the beginning of the year, and since then he's helped join the dots for me between a wide variety of subjects, all of which relate to the future of work, cities and human communities. In the show today, we discuss how cities will have to respond to the growth of remote and distributed work, and more broadly, how decentralisation impacts how we hire and are hired. We also explore how developments in machine learning, blockchain and crypto will create both opportunities and the risk of further divergence between those who have the most in-demand skills and experience and those who don't, what Draw calls winner takes most. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you check out Draw's blog, subscribe to this podcast and read my newsletter, Future Work Life. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Draw Polig. Enjoy. So Draw, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, loads of questions that I wanted to uh, cover with you, but I, I just wanted to start um, with an introduction to James, who is uh, your alter ego, nom de plume, pseudonym perhaps that you used a while ago. I'm wondering how you managed to incorporate this guy into your newsletter recently. Oh, wow. That, that came out of nowhere. I don't think I've ever discussed this story uh, on a podcast or anywhere else before. So I'm I'm 41 at the moment, but when I was uh, 20 or so, I lived in the coast of Israel near the Mediterranean. And I was in the military in Israel for three years, from the age of 18 until the age of 21. Uh, now, I've always been involved in the nightlife and party business to a certain extent from like middle school. You know, when I was 12 or something, I helped right. like a, a DJ who was slightly older than me, like a friend of my brother, also in school uh, to kind of promote parties. You know, Friday afternoon, he would kind of take some coffee shop DJ and me and a few friends would bring yeah. some of our friends and charge them like, you know, five bucks or something and nice. uh, kind of share the proceeds. Uh, but, uh, when I was in the army, I was participating in all sorts of online discussion groups about electronic music and nightlife. And I just chose the name James as my kind of like avatar or username. I just kind of yeah. thought, you know, James is cool. I was kind of somewhat obsessed, I think with Jim Morrison at the time. So maybe that's where James came from. Uh, and I never intended it to become anything more than an online username. But uh, the community was quite uh, intensively engaged. And uh, gradually, I got to know people and I made friends that only knew me as James. And it got to the point where people would invite me to events and say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll leave your name at the door, James. So then I would go to the event and say, hey, I'm James. <laughs> and then people would come and say hello to me. And basically I ended up having to use that name, never intending to pretend to be anyone other than myself, but kind of like people started knowing me as my online uh, username. And it kind of worked conveniently because I was in the army and I didn't really want everyone to know that I'm partying on my free time because, you know, that scene has a lot of things that maybe the army wouldn't condone. Uh, and it really became a whole persona. Even when I think about it today, you know, it has its own hairstyle and it has its own style and clothing. <laughs> I can send you some scary photos that would probably be hard to recognize. And, um, and yeah, and then when I, when I finished my military service, I went to 
travel the world. And I think that's more or less when James uh, completed his career. But every now and then someone reminds me of that story <laughs> or calls me that name. Uh, as you just did now, and I'm like, oh, wow, where did that look? Out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and I suppose you wrote about that because you were talking about this idea of, well, it wasn't even to do with pseudonymity, was it? You were talking about um, essentially this kind of make-believe character that was starting mm-hmm. to represent brands. And I suppose that was a, it was kind of an interesting way of kind of introducing this idea that the internet has changed our perception about you know who pe- who people are who we can be online the understanding between the real world and you know the the internet and the metaverse by extension so i mean would you sort of maybe explain what your thinking is around that because you you write a lot about that uh, these topics now don't you yeah a lot of my work is about the kind of shifting balance of power between the the digital world and the physical world uh, I spent a lot of my career in the real estate industry, you know, building shopping malls and office buildings and, and apartments and hotels. And I've I've came to notice already more than a decade ago, uh, I, I was doing this work in China mostly, and I started to see how the digital layers are starting to define what is valuable in the physical world. So it's no longer about you know, no longer only about where your building is or what it looks like. Uh, physically, but it's more about what kind of distribution channel do we do you have online? What kind of community do you have online? Uh, what kind of story can you tell online? And now that funnels economic activity, funnels physical traffic into specific places. And I've been obsessed with that question for a long time. And obviously now with COVID, it's 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 moving to the fore because a lot of people are starting to think, okay, there's online work and there's cloud kitchens and there's all sorts of other things that. Uh, basically mean that the customer begins their journey online uh, and then maybe uses a physical location or physical asset, but uh, which asset it uses and which locations it chooses to go to is determined by the the digital channel and digital story. And that comes down to individual people as well. And that made me think of that James story from 20 years ago, uh, which was kind of like a primitive example of that, that, you know, if you if you build an online channel and you tell a story and you have a certain persona, uh, you can actually take that offline somehow and, you know, invite people to a party to meet James and, you know, <laughs> meet girls, meet DJs, do all, you know, build all sorts of relationships based on that kind of uh, online channel that you built. And at least for me, with my kind of personality or neurological structure or whatever, it was a very convenient and maybe preferred way to interact with people. You know, I like to be online. I like to write first and kind of talk later. Mm. Uh, I I didn't really think about it like that then, but now I understand that there's actually a lot of people like that. And there's a lot of pent up maybe potential for creativity uh, that that was uh, held back by the old way of doing things of like, okay, let's all go to the office or let's all just interact online offline and kind of introduce ourselves. Uh, I I hate even today. I I know how, I mean, I know how to get along in social situations, but I really don't like introducing myself because frankly, I have no idea what I do even today. (laughs) Uh, But people who read my stuff know exactly who I am and what I do and, I have no idea how they define it, but if you read something I wrote, you kind of know me and then we can talk. Yeah. But if I have to explain to you what I do, I'm like, I really have no idea how to do that yet. Um, yeah. That first question of uh, what's your name? And then the second one is usually, what do you do? It's uh, 
it is really difficult, isn't it? Because, and, and I think also, you know, certainly the idea that you do one thing throughout your life is probably like a, a sort of a legacy from another age. What do you do? Well, do you mean, what did I do? What do I do? Or what will I do? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always struggled with that, even though I had like real jobs for parts of my career, but I never felt that those jobs defined me. So the, the longest kind of tenure that I had in any job was in the real estate development firm in China. But even while I was doing that, first, I, I arrived into my job by actually being a partner in an advertising agency, and I became oh. a real estate executive somehow, which is not the traditional trajectory, but just I had many real estate clients. And then one of them said, okay, you, you look like you kind of understand stuff. You're not a typical person for what you're doing now. Why don't you come and help us build this kind of platform and company in China and kind of do market research and decide what to buy and give names to our projects and help us yeah. even negotiate with banks and sellers, which is not, again, the typical person that you would choose. Uh, and even while I was doing that, I had all sorts of side hustles and content businesses online, and I would occasionally advise startups and invest in them. Uh, but my job was kind of overwhelming enough that that was my main title. But, but it's, yeah, but it's become increasingly hard to define what I do. My dad always asks me, like, what are you doing? I can't explain to him. So he, he kind of tried to narrow it down to something practical. And he said, what does it say on your business card? And I said, it just says my name. You know, that's, <laughs> that's who I am. I mean, pe people kind of, this is like maybe a brand or whatever it is like, but you know, people either get it or don't. And also maybe I don't have a business card at all because, uh, even today I have different online channels and different people know me from a different direction, yeah. uh, that is relevant to whatever it is that they're interested in. And, and some of them are interested in the fuller picture, including the James story, for example. And some of them are like, yeah, whatever. I, they don't care about that. They just need something very specific from me that I can give them like in terms of information or knowledge about like yeah. specific business. Well, let, let, let's, let's focus on one of those areas. And I mean, I definitely want to talk around tokenization of work and sort of, you know, the crypto world a bit later, but maybe let's sort of touch on the real estate side of your experience. You know, we are gradually seeing people returning to the office, um, perhaps not in the numbers they were before. There was a lot written over the past year about what COVID and the after effects meant for cities. So I know you're in the US, but I also know that you lived in, in London. I'm interested in getting a sense from you about how you see the sort of global city responding. I'm talking about things like Tokyo, New York, London, versus you know large cities, cities like Birmingham in the UK, which maybe have a million population versus some of those large towns slash cities what do you see as those different categories if you like and how work looks for people within those areas so big picture the most fundamental change that i think covid is now making visible is the fact that more and more people have a choice in terms of where to live uh, which means that just like any other product cities have to compete for consumers for customers uh, and that also means that they now have to compete along all sorts of consumer-ish dimensions. So it's not just about, okay, your job is here, so you have to be here. You know, you can kind of think a little bit about which neighborhood you want to be in or whether you want to live that life at all. But like, if you do, this is the place where you have to be yeah. uh, to more of a, okay, now you have a much kind of broader spectrum of of options and we have to convince you to come and live here, which means that, uh, it's no longer just about having all the jobs. It's more about the kind of lifestyle that we can offer. Uh, so following that, 
I don't think that I can make a blanket statement in terms of, you know, big cities will do better, smaller cities will do worse. Uh, I think on net, smaller cities definitely have now a much bigger opportunity uh, than they had, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, it doesn't mean that all of them will capture that opportunity, but in a way, big cities only have something to lose. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they will lose because a lot of those large cities uh, like London, like New York, are wonderful places to live in, even if you don't have to be there for work, uh, you know, because of the culture, because of the lifestyle, because of the the, the, the density and the walkability, uh, connectivity in terms of airports and, and trains. Uh, so people, I think there's going to be a lot of people who will choose to live in those cities, but those cities have to adapt in order to accommodate these people, which means yeah. they have to shift their focus away probably from the the office. I think London is pretty good at that already, just because it, it was kind of stuck with the layout that it had entering the 20th century. New York and a lot of other American cities and Asian cities are really built in the shape of the 20th century, which means like a huge core full of very, very tall office buildings that dominate the landscape. Uh, like Manhattan, interestingly, 100 years ago had actually more residents than it does today. So even though it grew overall and New York City grew overall, more and more offices basically pushed away people who used to live in Manhattan. I expect that in 10 years, more people will live in Manhattan than two years ago or even 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but in order to achieve that, the city will have to repurpose some offices into residential. Um, in most cases, it will be hard, but where it is possible, it should do that. Uh, and more importantly, it should just allow more housing to be built uh, on top of existing infrastructure in, in cities. I mean, in London, definitely, but but even in a dense place like New York, you have a lot of places that have a subway stop, but actually barely any housing around them yeah. uh, or, you know, very kind of low density housing, which which is very nice in some ways, but it also means that it's very it's a very expensive place to live. So if people no longer have to be there for their job, uh, the lifestyle would be appealing, but if they still have to pay something, uh, as a, you know, two or three times more than they would have to pay if you're just, keep the same job as go somewhere else. I think it would be difficult uh, to keep the city attractive. Um, and also the tax base of those cities, which is very dependent on office buildings, will have to shift, which means they probably need more residents who are paying kind of smaller tax tickets, but just there's more of them rather than to have these, you know, a smaller number of huge office buildings that pay a lot of tax, but uh, yeah. uh, are probably less attractive these days. And you mentioned there about the idea of, converting offices into residential premises uh, that's something i've heard lots of people say and I, when we get into the kind of practicalities of that it seems way more difficult than that very simple suggestion might seem i mean how realistic really i'm thinking about many of the many offices i've worked within most of which apart from around the perimeter don't have any windows certainly those big office blocks I mean, you know if you I mean, again I, I know it's difficult to generalize but if you were to say, as a percentage of office buildings, what percentage of that space might realistically, feasibly be able to be turned into residential property? I mean, I'd, 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 I'd guess the number would be pretty small, right? The number would be pretty small. If I just had to pull something out of my sleeve, I would say around 5%, yeah. if that. Uh, that said, 5% is a significant number uh, in terms of housing units that you can create. But more importantly... It's about what you're allowing and encouraging people to build going forward. Yeah. Uh, so not necessarily just about converting what's already there. Uh, 
you have a lot of office buildings that maybe are already obsolete that have to be kind of demolished and, and, or repurposed. So, I mean, that might create another few more percentage uh, points to be converted. And I think even within existing offices, there is room, assuming that the area around them is becoming more residential, there is room for, I would call, residential adjacent uses to move into office buildings. So, you know, cloud kitchens, healthcare, education, yeah. uh, logistics, uh, flexible work, you, you know, kind of something that is not exactly an office, but can accommodate on a flexible basis, all sorts of things that the local working and kind of residential community needs. And that gives you probably another 10, 20% right. uh, that you can bite into the office supply. Uh, and it also depends on the area. You know, if you look at a city like London, obviously Canary Wharf, like, yeah, it's like big floor plate office buildings, glass boxes, etc. cetera. Uh, also not really near anywhere interesting, not very walkable and kind of connected to its environment. But if you look at the city of London, actually a lot of that area was residential 150 years ago and then became offices and, you know, it can become <laughs> more residential still. Yeah. Uh, there as well, you have some glass giant buildings, but you also have a lot of much smaller buildings that uh, that used to be apartments before. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, I guess th this is as a result of many trends, but sort of the idea of decentralization of work, again, it's probably, I think most people wouldn't have even heard those two words put together a year ago, but it's starting to be discussed more broadly. And that, that can relate to location as in, you know, your, your workforce doesn't necessarily all need to be in the same place. It, it does relate to other areas. Well, I'm interested from your point of view, how you see the effect of decentralization on a broader scale. Are there any obvious challenges that you see from people switching to a model where they're just used to having the same employer for a long period of time to having multiple businesses that they can work with in any location? Yeah, I mean, I think there are huge challenges. Uh, I think that the labor market is about to go through very dramatic shifts over the next 20 years. Uh, if you ask an economist, they would tell you, oh, it all happened before. You know, we had industrialization, we had people replaced in all sorts of professions by machines or by globalization or whatever. And they always found something better to do with their time. And it all worked out well in the end and everyone is still employed. Uh, of course, an economist only looks at economic data. They wouldn't mention or consider the fact that also over the same period, we had two world wars, we had communist revolutions in the two largest countries on earth, we had all sorts of other unpleasant things happen. Uh, as far as economic analysis is concerned, all that matters is that 100 years ago, everyone had a job and now most people still have a job. So it means yeah. all, all is good. Uh, for us, normal people actually have to live through this period. <laughs> we, have, we have to kind of consider a, a few other things. Uh, so I think one thing that is missing from most of the debate about remote or decentralized work is that once uh, work becomes distributed, I think income becomes redistributed. So it's not just about the same people doing the same work, but doing it somewhere else. But it's about first, maybe different people altogether doing the work. So, you know, suddenly the same effect that globalization had on manufacturing jobs can still can finally arrive uh, to the kind of more sophisticated knowledge jobs, uh, to the more creative ones. Uh, but more importantly, we are going to see more people unleashed in terms of their full capacity uh, and being able to do more and being able to bring their expertise to the relevant situations uh, and get paid for that, which means that there's going to be a lot of people that used to kind of just do 
uh, not very effective work at an office, but kind of got away with it. Uh, and I think they're going to fall behind. And, and to explain what I mean, a few weeks ago, months ago, we had that kind of potential European Super League uh, reemerge. It ended up not happening, but even the fact that, that it was a possibility and that it was used as a bargaining chip shows you that something changed in the world, which means that if there are now, I don't know, 5,000 cities on earth and each of them has a, a football team, Suddenly, most of the people in that city don't really care so much about their local football team. They care much more about watching Liverpool or Arsenal or uh, MU, etc. Uh, and that means that those cities as well, that those clubs as well, are kind of less loyal to their own local fans because they say, "Okay, you guys are really nice and you're important to us, but there's you know five million other people that we can serve, and that's probably." ultimately we have to focus on them. And I think that's ultimately what is going to happen, whether it takes another year or five or 10, kind of the balance of power shifting away from yeah. the location. Uh, and you can bring that same example to the individual level where if in the past, if I was an average, let's say software engineer uh, in my city, I would get a job just because, you know, there's not just not many of me and the company that is hiring a bunch of people would have to at least consider me and probably one of them would select me. Uh, but now if I can compete on a global scale, if I'm really, really good, I can work for my highest and best use basically, which might be somewhere else or for another company that values my specific expertise. And that specific expertise means very multiple dimensions of who I am. So it's not just how I code, but maybe that I have experience in music or that I have a passion for something or, yeah. you know, very, very specialized kind of like selection process that makes me relevant for that specific job and for no other, uh, but at the same time, it means that I'm competing in a much bigger pool against, you know, a much higher number of people. And those of us who are really good can get paid whatever they want because they're competing in a huge market, just like Liverpool can now get paid much more than the size of ticket sales in Liverpool. Uh, but it also means that those 10 other clubs that were angry at those couple of clubs that were joining the Super League are left behind because they're saying, hey, you know, no, no, no. Let's keep the constraints here. I just want to compete in that, this little pool. You know, this is what works for me. Don't pull me into that. You know, I can't compete against Barcelona and Real Madrid and AC Milan. Uh, but now you're forced, you know, either you can belong to this league uh, or you can't. So two things happen here. One, in terms of the distribution of income, uh, it's moving from kind of a more normal distribution where kind of everyone gets paid some get paid more than others again if you look at the premier league the premiership uh you know the most successful club and the average club obviously there are differences in the revenue that they generate but they were still in the same ballpark and even if that ballpark meant you know that one makes five times more than the others or 10 times which is still a lot but when you move it to a global scale suddenly those really successful ones, they can make a thousand times or a million times more than the average club, or maybe the average club can just not survive at all in this type mm -hmm. of environment. Yeah. And if you bring the analogy to the individual, same thing. So the people who can do well can suddenly do much better than ever and kind of 10 times or a hundred times than ever. And the people who are kind of in the middle are suddenly competing with someone in India or in Croatia or with a robot or yeah. uh, with a group of people that can kind of together replace whatever it is that they were doing before. Um, so, yeah, and, and so I'm interested. So that's the 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 obvious example often when we talk about that and how the the effect of technology on work is 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 software engineers. So you sort of you know it's you could pick out 
you could name 10 companies immediately of um, who are fully distributed, who have accessed talent around the world. I'm just thinking at how does that relate to other types of roles? So if I were to say some roles, which I can see it working with, yeah, software engineers, you know, maybe designers, you know, we've seen things like Upwork or Fiverr allow you to access a designer located in, you know, in any place. And that means that your talent and your and the the cost of that talent suddenly become the variables, you know. So if you're based in India versus based in London, then you can probably afford to charge less, and you're more likely to get the work. As soon as you move offline, is that a, you know what what we're saying is that actually some roles will become scalable, yeah, scalable, and then there's going to be some which just are inherently you know local. So you know if you if I work on a building site um, and I drive a forklift truck. Uh, is my job safe forever? You know, do you see what I mean? Is there going to be a divide between the scalable jobs and the local jobs? Yeah. So the the thing is, we're seeing that even things that we thought could only be done in person are suddenly becoming digitized in one way or another. And I'll give you a couple of uh, popular examples. One is Peloton, you know, so in the past you were a gym instructor. You said, okay, I'm a gym instructor. Obviously, people in my neighborhood are going to have to come and see me in person. It's a very physical thing. I have to look at them. I have to measure their body and look at their posture and, you know, energize them. And they want to be around other people. Yeah. Uh, I'm good for the next two decades. And then something like Peloton comes around and says, no, you know, people can actually do some of this at home. Uh, not just that it's as good or kind of reasonably good, <clears throat> Maybe it's even much better in some ways because I can really measure everything about them and give their trainer like, you know, their heartbeat and their posture and like compare them to how they performed last time and give all sorts of prompts that, you know, an instructor on its own cannot do and energize them with music that that is based on their biofeedback and do all sorts of crazy things Mm -hmm. and match them in a group with people that they would really love to be around at that specific time of day and not just the five random people that happen to walk into the gym at the same time that morning. Uh, And you see that job moving online, but of course, when it's moving, it's not now every gym instructor is on Peloton instructing people, but Peloton, I think they have about five, six million users at the moment. And they have, last time I checked about 34 instructors. So there's 34 instructors, which probably replaced 5,000 instructors that used to serve those 5 million people, or maybe 50,000 instructors even. And now there's 34 of them. And even among those 34, I think there's an extreme parallel distribution. You know, there's one or two that get like 80% of, of all the views. Uh, and, and again, that's a very, very physical, very local, very analog kind of profession. And then from, from a direction that probably most people didn't consider, it becomes digitized and, and scalable. The second thing is, is even more physical. Uh, the world of, you know, uh, I would call it adult entertainment or even personal uh, relationships Uh, You have, obviously, pornography was always a big part of the internet, but what's interesting over the last few years is platforms like OnlyFans, uh, one of Britain's, uh, one more British contribution to to the culture. (laughs) He says we can't get technology, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And and over there, what's interesting is that it's no longer about, you know, people going to see like a stripper or, you know, looking for pornography. But a lot of it is really the unbundling of, of, of personal relationships. You know, people just want someone to know their name and to send them letters and to look at them and to kind of, uh, and that too is much more scalable. So instead of having one girlfriend for every boyfriend, you now have one girlfriend for 50, <laughs> for 50 yeah, people, yeah. Or one boyfriend for 50 girls. And, 
And it sounds crazy. It sounds like, you know, okay, this cannot replace personal relationships, but it is replacing them. We're seeing that people are having less sex, that people are uh, getting married uh, less altogether and later, uh, if at all. And, uh, and this too is something that took jobs away from your, you know, from your local stripper or even just from your local normal person who was looking for companionship uh, and moved it to the internet. Um, so yeah, I, I, I struggle to see jobs that, that I would say are, are inherently safe. Mm. That said, there are a couple of processes that mean that a lot of kind of physical jobs are probably going to do uh, better and better until they completely disappear. So, you know, things now we see that like a lot of uh, plumbers and service providers and builders, uh, their salaries are actually growing faster than in a lot of other sectors, uh, partly because of an economic process called Bommel's cost disease, uh, which basically means that if the economy overall uh, is growing, the things that depend on labor basically become more expensive because overall GDP is growing. And it's like a complicated explanation. <laughs> but uh, but the thing there is that the more expensive they become, the more an incentive someone has to come and automate them and replace them or to kind of come up with uh, with a different system altogether. And here, one of the limitations of our thinking is that we always look at what they do and try to think, okay, can a robot do that? Uh, but sometimes a robot doesn't have to do that. It can do something completely different that meets the same human need from a completely different direction. And, and again, something like OnlyFans, you know, you don't have to replace the experience of uh, having a relationship. You just have to kind of chip away at it from all sorts of directions. And then ultimately you, you make an impact uh, on the world. And uh, just one more example of this, like kind of more mundane, even something like a WeWork, which is not an extremely technologically intensive business, probably the biggest impact that it has is on the role of brokers, of kind of commercial agents. Uh, and WeWork never set out to replace the brokerage. Uh, they replaced, they set out to kind of reinvent the office or reinvent people's lifestyles. But because they have an online brand, people go and reach out to them directly yeah. and they generate leads directly, which kind of makes the broker altogether redundant in many situations. So they never even set out to kind of kill that person that they're killing, but it just, the whole process, the whole customer journey changed. So just some people became irrelevant overnight. Yeah. And talking about sort of new concepts. So again, you've written about this idea of a Ponzi career. Now, if you sort of think about the connotations of the word Ponzi, a Ponzi scheme, it's generally negative. Would you sort of explain what you mean by a Ponzi career and perhaps also give some context about whether you see this as inherently a positive thing or something that we should be wary of? Yeah, so a couple of decades ago, a fellow named David Bowie uh, issued bonds uh, to basically finance his continued uh, creative endeavors and to allow people who believe in him to get a piece of the revenue that uh, his recordings will generate in the future. Uh, now, today, back then, that was a very unique thing. You know, you had to be David Bowie, you had to work with an investment bank, you had to have a lot of lawyers, and he could do it. Today, the transaction costs of any individual doing something like that are much lower, especially with crypto. But even without crypto, uh, we're starting to see people basically selling shares of their future income and allowing their fans and their followers to, to participate and finance them, uh, which is great in itself. 
But it also means that if I'm buying an Oli token, because, you know, I believe in your podcast and other things that you do, uh, it's not only that I'm financing you and I want you to succeed, but also I want the token itself to go up in value. So now as a fan, I have a strong financial incentive, an explicit financial incentive to go and market you to other people. I want other people to buy the, the Oli coin. And then they want other people to buy that coin as well, which ultimately means that if you own a bunch of these coins because you created them, those Oli coins. Once you get a critical mass of other people marketing it, it basically doesn't matter if you're going to create any more content or, you know, produce any more hits. You already have enough people that own those coins and are going to market them to other people. So even though, even if those coins will actually never generate any revenue because you're not going to do anything ever more, you will still make money because the pyramid is kind of is yeah. in play. Uh, of course, it will stop at some point, and most people are not doing it in order to scam anyone. Uh, they are planning to actually use the money to do something creative. But it's interesting that this dynamic is now possible, and these incentives are now in place. Uh, and it's part of a broader phenomena that we're seeing of you know the ability to have a personality and a channel. And to be a storyteller is becoming more important than whatever inherent characteristics your actual business has. And probably the best example is Elon Musk. You know, mm. he kind of goes out and says something crazy. The, the stock, <laughs> the stock price of Tesla goes up, or or the or the price of some random coin that he has nothing to do with goes up or goes down just on a whim. Yeah. Um, so, and again, once some people buy in, they become fully engaged and they want to market it to other people. And it creates also dynamics that have nothing to do with the inherent value of the thing uh, itself around which the story initially began. Uh, now, whether it is a good thing or a bad thing, um, first, it's an inevitable thing, I think, which is the most important. I, I don't spend a lot of time in my work kind of thinking about whether I like stuff or not. And a lot of people don't like to hear what I have to say because they don't like it. But I'm like, you know, I'm here to tell you what I see. I'm not here to tell you whether I'm excited about it or not. Uh, you know, I write and I research as a defensive kind of mechanism. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to protect myself and figure out what's about to happen, yeah. uh, whether I like it or not. You know, I, that's what it is. Uh, but uh, I think it's part of a broader process, which I don't like of every human interaction becoming explicitly commercial. So, you know, everything has a price. Everything is clearly incentivized uh, economically. Uh, and, you know, we live now in a world of the sharing economy, which basically means that a lot of favors, a lot of things that used to happen just based on trust and based on friendship or based on favors are now priced. You know, oh, can I catch a ride with you? Yes, it's going to be 15 pounds. Yeah. Can I crash on your couch? Yes. Can I borrow your uh, lawnmower? Yes. But everything now is, you know, trust is completely commoditized. Uh, so in a way, it allows people to coordinate in, you know, much more broadly and to use resources more efficiently. But in another way, it means that we no longer have personal relationships with all, almost anyone. Again, going back to OnlyFans, you know, I just want a girl to say my name and, you know, look at me. I have to pay for that now as well. Uh, which means that the barrier to entry is lower. Like if in the past, you know, to go to a professional to give you those type of physical services, a lot of people wouldn't do that because there was some sort of high threshold. Yeah. But now it's just like, oh, what's the big deal? I just paid five bucks for someone to like, you know, yeah, do something yeah. personal uh, for me. So, so that process I don't like. Uh, I, I'm not so naive as to assume that humans before that were just, uh, you know, that human society was just based on love and, uh, you know, uh, 
pure feelings. I think always we coordinated and got along with each other because we had to, and we had all sorts of structures, you know, whether it is social or religious emerge because, uh, they had to facilitate this type of coordination between people, but there was still some kind of pure or holy or kind of non-monetary element about it, or at least it was hidden a little better. So we didn't feel like we we're kind of doing business with each other all day. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that, yeah, I can make a value judgment on and say that, you know, I, I don't like it. And I think there's going to be a counter reaction of people kind of hungry, yearning for some kind of, interaction with other people that is not completely based on uh, in instrumental kind of usage of, of other people, but more just about, you know, let's just be friends and yeah. help each other when we need. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to be honest, isn't it, you don't have to look that hard to see some really interesting opp opportunities being created by this sort of model. I mean, like the Lambda University um, is a really good case of that. I know you've written about a guy, he did like a personal IPO where effectively, you know, he, 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 you know, he had his own personal pitch deck and put it out to people. And look, if you're going into higher education nowadays and building up the level of debt you're going to build up, the idea that you might perhaps sacrifice a percentage of your future earnings, but get it up front to fund your way through, you know, college, university, that seems like a really smart idea. And, and, and you can also see the idea that actually, if you're invested in that person, I mean, both financially, but also, you know, you become emotionally invested. I think fundamentally, that's a good thing. You can see that the utility of these sorts of models, there might always be negatives, but you can definitely see positives that can come out of it and the opportunities that can come out of it. Yeah, I think, but here too, we have to think of where we are in time, you know, so when a few people do it, it's really cool. When everybody does it, it's much harder for everyone else to stand out and actually get people to buy their coin and to fund them, which means that those that are doing really well are going to get much more money. And those that are kind of not doing really well are just going to fall behind completely. Yeah. Uh, so th th this is the issue. I mean, Unfortunately, our current system is probably not better either. So yeah, the fact that education is so expensive and that you have to pay so much upfront, that doesn't make sense. People should, I don't encourage anyone to, uh, to get into debt uh, for that, unless you're studying something very, very specific and practical. And, but, but even then, you know, get a scholarship if you can. Uh, but, you know, when we have one or two kind of curious stories about people who issued their own coin, it's one thing. But it, when everyone is kind of competing in like some kind of a... You know, it's like the world of music itself. If we go back to that, you know, there's not a lot of people who actually make a living from music. Yeah. And if if we're all becoming artists and exposed to those same market dynamics, uh, some of us are going to do really, really well. Uh, another kind of layer of, you know, a few percents or maybe even 20% of us are probably going to do pretty good. And then there's going to be everyone else who just, you know, yeah, cannot survive doing this. And we'll have to find something else to do. Yeah. Exactly. So to tokenization. So again, you know, this touches on some of the things we've talked about. And again, um, you know, this is probably maybe the year within crypto has been the year of NFTs. Well, what relationship have they got to work? Oh, plenty. So here too, we start with the music industry. So, you know, when you hear a song on the radio, uh, every time the song is played, a bunch of people get paid. You know, the person who wrote it, the person who sang, the person who played bass, the person who produced, the person who bought something from the person who produced is kind of sometimes dozens of people uh, and it kind of trickles down. Uh, that's a very old and cumbersome system. There's a lot of people involved in keeping it uh, kind of working and enforcing it. And, and even that system doesn't work really, really well. Uh, what NFTs allow us to do, at least with some digital goods, but increasingly with other things, 
is to automate a lot of that. So first to make that completely streamlined. So I don't need lawyers. I don't need like the recording industry association of whatever. Uh, I don't need people to report that they actually play the song. I know automatically that the file has been used uh, and I know who deserves what kind of percentage at what point in time uh, automatically, not like once a year when they tally everything up, uh, which is already a big improvement. You know, as an author, for example, my book gets sold every day, but I hear about it once a year, I get a proper report from my publisher and then I actually get paid, which is really stupid. So a year and a half after the year when the sales happened began is when I get paid for it. Uh, so all of that can be done much better. But much more interestingly, once the transaction costs of enforcing this system are much lower because they're done automatically, you can suddenly apply them to much simpler kind of interactions. You don't need to be a Taylor Swift or like a multi-billion dollar industry in order to enforce the system. You can just be a guy who wrote a blog post and quoted a few ideas from other people and linked to a few articles and then automatically compensate those people who were quoted in the post uh, or, or were linked to. And we're starting to see people doing that. Uh, and then the next stage is if that article ever gets sold, Every time it gets sold, even if the original creator is not the owner anymore, you can make sure that they get a piece out of it. We started to see NFTs begin with artwork and with kind of more frivolous uses. But very quickly, we saw it come down to more of like blogging and writing, which is kind of like a little more tame than just, you know, designing uh, an image. But for me, what's interesting is what it means for a lot of other pieces of work where like, you know, if I can get compensated just by contributing ideas to to different people's projects, uh, it means that I'm suddenly creating all of these multiple income streams. And it also means, again, that I can scale myself much more uh, significantly than before because my ideas can now be monetized without me having to worry about them or to create anything uh, directly myself. And they can, they can make money for me while I sleep. And here too, the threshold is becoming much lower. I don't need to write a, a full book and go with the publisher and have like the whole copyright system in place. I can just be a guy who wrote a blog post that someone happened yeah. to quote and that's actually happened you know there's two different articles that i got paid for that other people wrote and quoted me uh so which was kind of cool and i think you know i'm one of the first to experience this joy but i think more people can can experience it in the future and here it ties into another group of technologies not nfts but one of the interesting things in machine learning and the whole world of ai is that they turn unstructured data into structured data. So, you know, they take stuff that is not digitized, that is hard to measure and turn it into something quantifiable. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you bring the same logic of the blog posts or of the music royalties into just a meeting offline, you know, some people were in a meeting, they were talking. Now I can kind of immediately figure out who is there, who said what, who ended up repeating the same thing five times later in the office during that year you can suddenly create a system where people are really compensated and measured uh, much more uh, at a much more granular level, which ties into remote work as well, because now we're just measuring people about what they actually do and not just about the fact that they showed up in an office. Right. Uh, and that too comes down to the same place of like, okay, some people are going to suddenly be exposed as being incredibly more efficient and more productive and more valuable to that specific organization. Uh, than previously assumed and some people will be exposed as being like you know not very very big contributors to that organization uh, i was careful not to say inherently valuable because all people are valuable for something but you know that means that some of these people could find a different place where they'll be more valuable and more and more kind of relevant 
but that process, you know, that dislocation doesn't get resolved overnight and it, it, it's going to be painful for some. Hmm. Uh, and maybe finally to come back to, to, you know, the winners, part of the issue with this game is that even the winners are not uh, on stable ground. So, you know, just like in the music industry, the fact that I had a hit song this year doesn't mean that I'm going to have a hit song next year. Uh, and I have to constantly struggle to keep ahead and in a very dynamic and volatile environment. And that's just financially. I think psychologically, it's also a completely different ballgame because we know that even artists that, you know, got $20 million for one movie, theoretically would say, okay, they have $20 million. What's, you know, they can retire now. They don't need to work ever again. But we know that that's not how it works. You know, they get into also <laughs> substance abuse, et cetera, because they, they want to replicate the same feeling. They want to stay at the top. Uh, they want to keep up with those people around them in their industry or what they conceive as their peer group. Uh, and that creates all sorts of anxieties that that again used to belong only to movie stars or athletes and are now kind of becoming uh part of life for an increasingly growing list of previously boring and stable professions hmm. so i see the opportunities in these things maybe i'm just a just generally an optimist i'm not not, not that i'm just downplaying the the kind of externalities potentially but uh, it's hard enough often actually defining what what a good job looks like for, done by most people um, i wonder whether you know how far are we away from seeing widespread application beyond say content creation or again you know development so again i think you gave an example and i'll, I'll link to some of these articles in the show notes but um, you gave an example of um work done on i think it's on android done android on some of the work on the android operating system um and mm -hmm. there's there, there's something quantifiable about the contribution certain developers made to that and it isn't necessarily the amount you know the number of lines of code shipped right. it's actually you know in many cases what has re remained relevant to that application over time and and you can sort of see that that use case works really well and likewise you know if somebody quotes you 50 times it's like citations isn't it if your work's quoted 50 times and and each of those articles gets 10,000 views, 20,000, 100,000, a million, you can start seeing the, the, the relevance to, to, to that model. I just think there's so many people struggle to, d to define what um, what a good job done looks like. You know? And so I suppose that's the step even before we can start tokenizing work, isn't it? And I, so I, from that point of view, I mean, how near are we to seeing widespread adoption of, of these types of technologies? So first, staying at the theoretical level, it ties into the a couple of topics ago where we were in terms of more and more aspects of life becoming commercialized. Yeah. So, you know, people pay for certain things and more and more for like, you know, all sorts of every little gesture, every little thing becomes something that is for sale, which means that it's much easier to measure whether it's valuable economically or not. You know, you don't need to really understand what I did for you or, you know, whether some girl uh, smiled like this or smiled like that. On OnlyFans, you just need to know that someone paid for it. And if someone paid for it, it means that it was economically valuable. And again, I'm not making a value judgment on how people make a living and, you know, on money itself being the measure of a man or a woman in terms of what their inherent value is. But just from an economic perspective, if someone paid for it, it means that, you know, it generated more royalties. Just like with a song, I don't care if it played on the radio or on some wedding or in like, you know, a bachelor party, if it played... Somebody has to pay for it. Uh, whatever people do with it is none of my business. Uh, so, so I think quantifying and measuring it is is easier than than it sounds. Uh, in terms of how quickly before it makes an impact, 
it it really depends. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna unfold over decades, but I think we're already starting to see it making an impact in more and more professions. I mean, even if it's just in the software and the media industry, these are very important industries. And media in particular ties into another trend that I'm interested in, which is that content be- becomes the core to any type of business. Any company is now a content business in a way. You know, if you want to be relevant, you have to have a voice, you have to have a channel, you have to have people who are passionate about you. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what you're selling or what you're doing. Uh, and once you're in the content business, then again, you're in the content business and all those dynamics that affect content uh, apply to you as well. And they can be measured and monetized uh, in some cases more directly and in some cases less. Uh, also, as more of these professions, offline professions are moving online or at least are augmented by online tools. So again, the Peloton instructor, for example, the fact that he's online also means that he's completely measurable now. I know at every given moment how many people are looking at him, how many people are engaged, how many people are paying. So now I can measure his activities at a much more granular level. And and that comes down to even more boring professions. Again, we have, let's say, the soccer players that we have now. You know, we already measure, you know, how many kilometers they run and how many breaths they take and how many touches they get. Uh, it's very easy to get from that to actually compensating them based on, you know, those specific activities and incentivizing all sorts of behaviors. Uh, and likewise, we already scan the faces of the fans in order to see who's uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but you can actually incentivize them to sing more songs or to behave in a certain way and then compensate them, uh, which sounds crazy, but I think that that world is coming because if anything, the, the, the data is already there. It's just about you know deciding to use it, uh, and, and I'm sure that people will. Yeah, and, and for more on um, wild uh, ideas about different ways of making money in the future like i think for example your neighbor not making too much noise you can read about that in george george's book <laughs> so it's pretty good um yeah so let's let's well i don't know if i mean rewind or let's assume you were giving your 20 year old self draw or maybe i should call him james uh some advice <laughs> about about what to what to do with your career now you've had a pretty wide and varied career and it, it sounds like you've probably taken a route which is more reflective of the future than perhaps you know you looked at the past as in different different um you know different occupations different interests that you've been able to create value out of over the years what what do you what do you tell somebody who's at that point where they're deciding whether to go into further education is it yes go in and do a degree which just gives you a great different perspective on the world or is it you know here are some very specific professions which i think you're going to be a winner in if you go if you follow that route in the future First, I really value education. So uh, whether it is in a university or somewhere else, I think that it's valuable to spend a few years and to kind of learn how to learn. But you have to make sure that if you invest those years, you actually go somewhere that teaches you how to learn. I think part of the issue with a lot of universities today is not just that they're expensive, but just that they kind of focus on all sorts of causes and all sorts of things that uh, are not necessarily productive. Uh, maybe in themselves are valuable, but not valuable for a young person who paid a lot of money and needs to actually take something with themselves and and, and make a life and living. Uh, But I would just, first I would travel. I would learn a lot of history. I would learn to code and build things myself. It doesn't mean that you should become a, you know, a computer scientist, but the ability to build a website, to do basic graphics, to patch all sorts of uh, no-code things together, I think is super valuable for whatever it is that you want to do. And it's kind of becoming a basic skill now, you know, both both on the content creation and slightly 
uh, on the on the technical side. Uh, you know, when I was starting to do web design when I was in high school or middle school in like 1995, everyone said, oh, this is really cool. You know, you're building websites, but, you know, in two or three years, everyone will, will know how to build websites and or there'll be kind of these uh, automated things to do it. And even today, even though I'm not in that business and haven't been in it for like 15 years, people still ask me for help with like building yeah. stuff because they just don't know how to do it. So I think that's that's still a key skill of like, you know, just doing basic Photoshop and content editing and kind of just being familiar with the different platforms. Uh, but more than anything, it sounds corny. I would just say, you know, follow your curiosity. I don't think there's a clear path anymore. I don't think anyone can tell you what you need to be. Uh, there's definitely some professions that are safer than others, but, you know, I, none of them are safe enough to really keep you safe for a whole career. If you're just starting today, maybe they're safe for the next 10 years or 12 years, but you'll have to reinvent yourself a couple of times uh, before you get to the finish line, if there is a finish line. And, uh, you know, what I did is really just follow my curiosity and also go to places like if I'm paying for education, go to places where you can actually learn rather than the places with, you know, like the biggest name or the most expensive price tag. Like uh, I I did my my BA in Australia just because I found a school in a neighborhood that I liked. Uh, it wasn't like a famous big school. Uh, and uh, it just, you know, wasn't very expensive. And I kind of thought, okay, I can learn some things here. I'll meet some cool people that I haven't met before. Uh, and, and that's good. And then I did my master's at the LSE because... First, because I could, you know, I was like, I was already working. I took a break from work. I could afford it. Uh, and also because I wanted to be in London more than anything else. So I learned some stuff at school, but I mostly just wanted to interact with like amazing people from all over the world, which is what I got uh, by being in London. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, follow your curiosity, have some basic foundation of digital skills, uh, be on Twitter. <laughs> I think that's a good advice for life. But but seriously, you know, you can make amazing connections, and you know, and and maybe the final one is like create content. You know, yeah. generate something that allows people to discover you and know who you are. It doesn't mean you should make a living from writing, but I think uh, writing is an extremely powerful thing, and it's especially in a remote or distributed world, it's it's an increasingly valuable calling card uh so to end where we began you know i i think i said that previously i felt that the world of meeting people offline was not optimized for people like me because i'd rather people meet me online and read something before i meet them i think this is becoming increasingly the default so, you know if you want to make a good impression of people uh, creating your own content and having your own online persona or multiple ones uh, to go back to james uh, i think is these are the assets of the future, you know, to have your channels, to have your community that supports you. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and pray. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I appreciate all the content you've been creating. It's so, so satisfying my curiosity as well. Maybe may, really made me think. So uh, Joel, thanks again for all your time today. It's been a wide ranging chat. I will point everyone in the direction of your blog. We'll speak again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Ollie. And that was my conversation with Draw Poleg. So much to contemplate and consider after that. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As I mentioned in the show, I will put links to some of the articles that I referenced in the show notes. So please have a look at those and make sure you check out Draw's website and subscribe to his newsletter. 
It'd be great if you could subscribe to my newsletter, Future Work Life 2, if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to this podcast. You can also find references to all of my previous articles and podcasts on my website, futureworklife.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ollie Henderson, and I'll see you here again soon.